Good morning, church. So, uh, continuing on with our sermon series in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in Corinthians chapter 4 today. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and pop that open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If not, you'll notice it on the screen. Let's hear the word of the Lord. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am, there, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. It is the Lord... I'm sorry, let me try that verse 5 again. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his, con his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in, disres in disrepute. To, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When, revi when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant. As though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with the love in the spirit of gentleness? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, we uh, come to you just thanking you so much for your day, for the day today that we have. Thanking you for this time we have to, to the worship, uh, to worship you through the hearing of your word, and then through the response to the word. Father, I ask that um, you would put me aside, that this be of you, uh, that the things said today that that are here glorify and honor and exalt you. And, and Father, I pray that they edify the congregation and edify the church as, as they listen. And respond. I pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, you would convict us, you would challenge us, and you would spur us on for your sake and for your honor and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if we were to just take a quick kind of cursory read through 1 Corinthians 4, we see that Paul is really kind of continuing on his defense of his apostleship that he started in chapter 3. Right, but he's also making a case for um, a proper view of, of church leadership or just gospel-centered leadership altogether. Right? And, and, and this is the initial issue within the Corinthian church, that, that some members of the church had begun to elevate certain leaders and other ministers higher than others. And this was causing divisions in the church and was causing the ministries of the church to fail. And there was so much infighting happening that the gospel could not be proclaimed well within the community. And so, so this, is, this is an inherent problem with having favorites. And we all have favorites of something, right? Whether it's a favorite coffee brand or whether it's a favorite, um, man, gosh, growing up I had a favorite blanket. And if you were to take that favorite blanket from me, it was going to be rough. Like We all have favorites of something. But when we talk about favorites, one of the inherent problems is, is that you eventually start to speak ill of the competition, right? Those, those who know me well know that I'm really not a sports guy of any kind. But I know enough that when I'm in a conversation about the Colts, if I slip in a snide remark about the New England Patriots, then I can stay within the conversation, right? That, that we, start to, we start to have these kinds of jabs back and forth. Right? And this thing happens all the time. Just, just Wednesday night after our Bible study and prayer meeting, Bruce and I were talking about some repairs that, that I've made on my old truck and, and some things that I need to do coming up on the thing. And Bruce and I are both Ford truck guys. All right? Sorry about the bow tie fans. That's where Bruce and I lay. All right? Now, it didn't take us any time at all within our conversation to start making jabs and jokes about Chevy trucks. It's just, it's just what happened. It's natural. Everything was good-natured. Everything was clean. Everything was not mean-spirited, but it was just that sort of thing. And I get it. That's what happens. I have been told more times than not that my old Ford truck stands are found on the road dead. I get it. This is what happens. But the problem with this kind of talk centered around favorites within the church is that it starts to demean men and women who are made in the image of God. You get that? That, that, that it's demeaning to people made in the image of God. It, it degrades church leaders who are called by God to serve the local body and to serve the local community. It gives the appearance of a diminished power of the gospel in the lives of those who have come to Christ through those ministries. It's one thing to talk about an inanimate object and crack a joke, or to talk about a sports team and crack a joke. But this is not cracking a joke. This is not what Paul's showing here. This is the kind of favoritism that hurts and wounds and divides. 
And this is what Paul was experiencing with the church in Corinth. Right? Those who claimed Apollos, those who claimed Cephas or Peter, they, right, they were not just being foolishly loyal to them, but now they were denigrating the personage and denigrating the ministry of Paul. And, and, and in the inverse, this could have also been happening as well, that the followers of Paul may have been denigrating the ministries of Peter and Apollos. Scripture doesn't say, but, but, but we, can, we can think that that might be taking place as well. See, we, we do know that, that this kind of favoritism was leading people away from the truth of the gospel message. And it was leading them away from the truth of the gospel that they had, they had first heard, and it had stunted their growth in Christ. And, and Paul gives the people an, an outline here for how they and how we in turn should view leadership from a gospel-centered mind point, how, how Christ-centered leadership should look. And so Paul begins to go into that. The, the gospel-centered leaders seek to be faithful servants who are stewards of the gospel. So the very first thing that Paul points out is that Christians should regard leaders as servants of Christ. The, the word Paul uses for servant here is, is very interesting. It, it's the only time that he uses it in all of the New Testament. In, in chapter 3, verse 5, when he's talking about servants, he uses the Greek word diakonos, right? And, and those of you that know Greek better than I do, I apologize. You're, you're probably, man, he's butchering it. But, but he, he, he uses that word, and, and that's the word where we get deacon from, right? One who serves within the congregation or, or serves that. Here he uses hyperetes, right? Which means literally the bottom rung rower. Think, think about like some of us grew up watching some of those old Viking and, and old um, uh, uh, gladiator movies, right? And there was always the guy in the, the, in the bowels of the ship, and the big dude with the drum, boom, boom, boom. And the guy's rowing. The word Paul uses here, that hyperetes, is those guys, it's those guys in the bowels of the ship rowing the ship that had to be rowed in ancient times, right? These are the dudes who were the engine of the ship in their day. Here's the thing about them. The way those ships were laid out is all the cargo in the ship was stored above them. They were literally the lowest of the low places. But at the same sentence, he uses this next word, uh, oikonomoi, which means to be a supervisor or a manager or an overseer of an estate. Right? That, that we're, we're the lowest of the low who have been entrusted with something great. And that's what Paul's saying here about, about that. So, so how in the world can a leader be the lowest of the servants, yet supervising manager at the same time? Right? Well, Paul is saying that pastors, elders, and, and any in church leadership are, are to be humble in their service. But they also bear major responsibilities. Right? They serve the church and the people of the church, but have a burden of responsibility before God. And, and this creates a tension in them. It, it creates a tension between being lowly in a leader's own merit 
and yet knowing that they've been entrusted with the most precious gift in the universe, the mysteries of God. Right? So as, as followers of Christ, all of us are called to be faithful to the mysteries of God. And, and if you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you claim him for, for that, if you say that Jesus is the Savior of my life, you are called to be faithful to the living Word of God. You're called to be faithful by living by the living Word of God. And you're called to be faithful by proclaiming the truth of the Word of God to those around you. As leaders within the church, there's, an, there's kind of an extra layer of faithfulness that God has given us. And that's to equip you guys, the saints of God within the church, to, to, to be faithful to the Word and, and to its daily proclamation. And this faithfulness here is about loyalty. Right? Church leaders are to be loyal to Christ alone. Now, that, now I say that and that sounds really weird here. Tr- leaders within, gospel-centered leaders are to be loyal to Christ alone. Now, it, it is Christ who's placed Paul in the role in the ministry he's given. This is the same is true for, for pastors and elders of churches today. Understand this, though, that loyalty is not the same as accountability, right? Pastors, elders, Bible study teachers, they're all accountable to the people of the church, but their loyalty is to Christ alone, right? So the church in Corinth had forsaken their loyalty to Christ for loyalty to specific leaders. The loyalty to specific leaders was now causing division angst, disunity, and all of that, all of that is incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now they start to unduly criticize Paul because of their loyalty to Apollos or their loyalty to Cephas. Not because Paul was leading them astray, not because Paul had taught any falsehoods within the church, but because they had misplaced loyalty. The next thing we kind of see is that that gospel-centered leaders are going to seek out God's approval alone. If you're loyal to Christ alone, you're going to seek out God's approval alone. And that's what verses 3 through 5 get at. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am thereby not acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one of you, then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, in verses three through five, Paul points out that the judgment is coming, right? And, and that it, judgment has been coming for some in the Corinthian church. That, that the, they've questioned here Paul's speaking ability and in turn, they've questioned his, his spiritual effectiveness. And, and Paul's just simply not putting up a silly, hypocritical, unfounded earthly judgment. He is not concerned with what people think of him. He is only concerned with what God thinks of him. And, and honestly, this should be natural for church leaders. This should be the case. If, if pastors and elders are, are loyal to Christ and loyal to Christ alone, then they desire no approval but Christ alone. 
But Paul goes so far to say, I don't even trust myself to make an accurate judgment about me. I could be guilty of things none of us can see. Right? Paul doesn't have self-esteem. Think about that a second. Paul doesn't have self-esteem. And he's okay with it. Right? Why doesn't he have self-esteem? Well, he's already called himself the lowliest of the low. Right? But he's one who carries a high responsibility. He doesn't have self-esteem because he has Christ-esteem. He's replaced his self-esteem with Jesus Christ. It's only through the power of Christ within him that he has any ability or he has any reward. And there is his focus. Verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive is commendation from the Lord. When Paul says this, this is so very different than only God can judge me. Right? This is a combination of personal humility, yet confidence in Christ to say, I am much more concerned about what God has to say about me in the end than what people have to say about me now. As far as I know, I've been faithful to him, but when he returns, he will sort that out and disclose it. Until then, I will seek his favor over man's every time. You want to be a gospel-centered leader? You got to get to that point in your life. You got to get to that point in your life. That, that this be the prayer of the heart of all who are called on the name of the Lord Jesus. That, that, that we are humble enough to have him rend our hearts so our confidence is in him and has us loyal to him alone and never fearful and never desirous of the approval of man. And then in verse 6, Paul, Paul does something interesting. He applies all of this defense of his apostleship to Apollos. Apollos was not an apostle. Right? But, but in doing this, Paul is talking about how all ministers and all church leaders should function. And more importantly, they should not go beyond what is in the Word of God. In verse 7, Paul starts to ask these rhetorical questions. And there's five rhetorical questions that he asks. And, and every one of those rhetorical questions, it exposes where they had theologically fallen away. All five questions focus on the fact that all of their abilities, all of their opportunities, all of their blessings are from God and from God alone. See, they have forgotten to be humble. They have forgotten to be faithful. They have forgotten to be servants of Christ who are stewards of the gospel. They have forgotten they owe everything to the grace of God. They boast in things they should not, and they have become worldly in their boasting. Church, do not forget, you who are called of Christ are called to be humble, faithful servants who steward the gospel. There's no place in the kingdom of heaven for worldly boasting. Gospel-centered leaders will be foolish spectacles for the sake of the gospel. Look at, look at verses 9 and 10 here. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all 
like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle of the world to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor. We are in disrepute. Paul is describing some, some very interesting Roman traditions here. Right? This, this could describe a couple of things that, that Paul had, would have seen in his life. He could, he could talk about, it could describe like the, the parading of captured enemy soldiers before their public execution. This was something very common in, in Roman culture, that they would win a battle and they would bring all of the soldiers back from the battle and they would parade them through the center of town. Everybody look at the shamed soldiers. Now we're going to go publicly execute them. And you can look at them while we're doing that as well. Right? This could also be kind of the way gladiators in the arena would have been condemned to die as well. There's, there's both. That, that, that people are watching this Roman spectacle and, and both of these. But he really, here, he, what he's describing isn't as important as, as the metaphor behind it. And he's using this metaphor to describe the humiliation that, that in Christ he has chosen for himself in order to best serve Christ. See, Christ was humiliated in his death, and Paul is choosing humiliation in his life. Gordon Fee says it like this, it truly was like master, like servant. Paul is honoring Christ in choosing that humiliation. See, we are made fools for Christ because of what we believe. There is absolutely nothing about the gospel message that makes sense or seems wise to an unbelieving world. When you stop and think about it, think about the message of the gospel. The one true and holy God creates mankind in his image, knowing full well they will sin and rebel against him. Their sin requires sacrifice to atone for their sins and to appease his wrath. God gives laws to then draw the people back to him and to teach them to have faith in him again. Yet they rebel against those laws. The law will not and does not work to atone for sin or to appease the wrath of God. People need to be rescued from their own rebellious, sinful nature. And God himself will be the rescuer. Right? Jesus, God the Son, will come to earth in human flesh. He'll live out the law of God perfectly. He will proclaim repentance and faith as the way back to God. Then he will willingly allow himself to be sacrificed so that atonement for sin and to appease the wrath of God. And he does this by dying on the cross. He'll be buried for three days and he'll be raised from dead to show that death has no power over him. And those who believe in him, repent and place their faith in him, have their sins forgiven and the wrath of God taken from them. And then they will inherit eternal life with Christ. That's the message of the gospel. And when you say it and you, and you think about it, it doesn't make sense to the world. That's okay. Just because it sounds like foolishness doesn't mean it's not true. This is the truth. It sounds like foolishness to the world, but it is the truth. And we teach this story over and over again. And when we do, we are seen as fools. There's humility there. When you proclaim truth and the world sees you as a fool, you experience just a small, 
just a small bit of the humiliation that Christ had. We have to teach the humility of the cross. We have to teach the humility that is the gospel message. We also teach the power of the cross. In verse 10, Paul says, you claim to be wise, you claim to be strong, you claim to be noble and great, but real leaders in the church don't place their confidence in themselves the way you are. They place all their confidence in what Christ has done for them. In placing all confidence in what Christ has done for us, we then are, are seen by the world as weak, foolish, and without honor. That's okay. It's okay. Because when we have the confidence in Christ, and when we have confidence in what Christ has done for us, we can be confident in the commendation that we will receive from God. And that goes back to verse 5. Gospel-centered leaders live out death and or live out uh, the death on the cross. Keep your thumb in, in 1 Corinthians 4, but let's flip back to Mark 8 real quick. Um, take a look at Mark 8, 34 through 38. And Jesus is, is preaching here. This is just after Peter has confessed, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And, and Jesus is continuing to teach the apostles here. And he says, and, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels." As I read those words, Jesus is telling his followers what it must take to be a true, fully loyal, devoted follower of Jesus Christ. When I look at verses 13, or I'm sorry, 11 through 13 of 1 Corinthians 4, to this present hour, we hunger and thirst, and we are poorly dressed, and we are buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. We are, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. As I read those words, it, it, it would appear to me that Paul is describing what Jesus was talking about in Mark 8 lived out in his, in his context. That, that leaders within the church will, will be foolish spectacle for the gospel who teach foolishness of the power of the cross and are going to live out the death on the cross. And, 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 and in doing that, they are seen as truly, fully devoted followers of Christ. And he's admonishing the Corinthians here. He's kind of calling them out. You guys act like you're kings. You act like you're noble. And this is where we're at. And we're just trying to do the job that God has called us to do to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you want to bicker and argue and look foolish and silly and treat us badly. 
And he, and he, takes, a, he takes a turn here in verses 14 through 21. He goes from this admonishment in verses 1 through 13 to a slightly more gentle voice in 14 through 21. Paul now starts to write like he's a disappointed dad. I think of those, man. Those times when, when dad set you on the edge of the bed, right, and, and just gave you the world-class scolding you deserved. And then he said, this always, oh, just, just take your belt off, pop, and, and just wail on me rather than say this. I'm much more disappointed in you than I am angry. Are you serious? Like, that would just tear me up. Paul has just pulled, in verses 14 through 21, this classic dad maneuver, right? I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For through... For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. See, Paul loves these Corinthian believers. And his heart breaks that they have moved from the central truth of the gospel and, and the central truth of the gospel that the church he planted was planted on. He, he sees himself as the spiritual father of this church because he's the church's founding pastor, the church planner. And like every good dad, he wants the church to imitate the good that is in him. And in doing this, we see that gospel-centered leaders will admonish their people in love. And that's what Paul's doing here, that, that he's, he's admonishing them, right? And this should be normal. This should be a completely normal thing for, for leaders to warn people they love about, about the things that they are doing that are harmful and then encourage them to do what is right and to what, do what is good. Somewhere along the line, we, we've lost a lot of that, right? That, that, it's, that it's okay for parents to do that with their children, but it's not okay for adults within the church to do that for one another. That has to come back. And the people of God should desire that. And the people of God should encourage that, that, that we should be loving one another and admonishing one another and, and encouraging one another to do what is good and right and just by Scripture. And, and gospel-centered leaders then set an example for people to follow. In, in verse 16, Paul says, I urge you be imitators of me. He's going to say this is going to come up a couple more times as we're reading through 1 Corinthians. The idea, though, that, that my life, or even that Chris's life, is, is an example in Christ for you to follow is, I'm not going to lie to you, that's heavy to hold. That's a, that's a heavy, weighty box. right? I know that there are times in my life that I fail. Now, here's, here's one of my hopes. It's my hope that my quickness to repent of those failures, and it is my hope that my, my quickness to seek proper restoration are examples for you to see and hold on to. I hope that you see in, in Chris and me a love for the Word of God that is an example for you to follow. I hope that you see in Chris and I that a, a desire to proclaim the gospel that is an example for you to follow. I hope that you see in Chris and I a, a perseverance through difficult times in our lives that is an example to follow. 
don't imitate us exactly. We're fallen. Right? Imitate the way we try to imitate Christ. Look at, look at how we're trying to be Christ-like and go, okay, that's the direction we need to go. Look to the Word to see what it means to be Christ-like and, and, and live that out. That's why Paul was sending Timothy to go back. Like, look, he's figured out how, to, how I imitate Christ. Watch how Timothy imitates Christ. Imitate Timothy imitating Christ. Right? And that's what he's asking. gospel center leaders discipline people within the congregation or within the church for their righteousness sake. This is another thing that's this difficult. But Paul closes out this chapter with, with words of discipline for the church. There are arrogant people who have, become, who have been championing favoritism. They've been championing eloquence. They've been championing giftedness. And when Paul arrives, he'll find out if that's rooted in the Holy Spirit or in the haughtiness of man. Right? He says that in 19, but, when I, but I will come to see you if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Paul already knows where it's rooted. He already knows. Right? And, and, and the thing we have to remember is that as Paul is writing these words, he's writing this all because of his love for this church. He loves them enough to discipline them and to steer them back to the Lord. This desire is not to be merely punitive. That's not what Paul's looking to do here. This isn't about punishment. This is about restoration. This is, this is restorative discipline. This is a loving form of discipline. Right? Don't put your hand on the hot stove. I'm going to smack your hand. I don't want you to have burns there. This is what Paul's getting at. And... and and he's even allowing those who need discipline to determine how bad the discipline will be. Whew. Remember those conversations with parents too. If you fess up now, it'll be a lot easier than it is if you keep lying. Right? Paul's doing the same thing. Verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come with you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You want a spanking or a grounding, right? I mean, that's kind of what he's asking here. What he's also saying, though, to the Corinthian church is that you, as followers of Christ, you can begin the restorative process now. If you begin the restorative process now, that makes it easier for everyone else involved. Or you got a choice. You can remain stiff-necked, and then the restorative process is going to begin with a punitive measure. This is where it is. And we see this in chapter 4. And so you're kind of looking at this and it's like, so, so why does Paul write to the church about leadership and the proper view of it here? Why is he doing that? Why, why, why do we see him doing this? Well, we see favoritism happening in the church that has led to a lack of faithful servants who are stewards of the gospel. There's a lack of leaders who seek God's approval alone. A lack of leaders who teach the humility and the power of the cross. There's, there's a lack of those who are living out death on the cross. And what that has happened is, has happened then in, in the Corinthian church is that, that it leads to corruption 
and blatant sin that Paul is going to have to address in chapters 5 and beyond. And when Paul gets to that in chapter 5, it's rough. The kinds of sin that he's seeing in the church, he says, are not even the kinds of sins we see out amongst the pagans. Church, you look as bad as the rest of the world. Maybe worse. Is what Paul's saying to the Corinthians here. So what does that mean for us? How does that apply to us in a 21st century modern local church? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, first, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you, you, you don't know the gospel message, and you, you've not repented and, and placed your faith in him alone, you can't be a gospel-centered leader. You've got to do that first. Once you are a gospel-centered person, because you have Christ in your life, then the next thing to do is to become a good gospel-centered leader, you've got to pray for the leadership of Calvary Heights. You've got to pray for the leadership of your local church. Pray that, that we are gospel-centered leaders. Pray that, that we grow as gospel-centered leaders, that we are faithful servants who steward the gospel, that we teach the humility and the power of the cross, that we live out our lives in a manner that shows Christ's death on the cross and the power that it has. Second thing to do, Ask God to do the same in you. You may not lead within the church necessarily. Right? But you probably do lead in your family. You may lead in your workplace. You may lead in your peer group or your friend group. Ask God to make you a gospel-centered leader there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, I just come to you thanking you so much. Thanking you for your word and the power that, that it has. Father, I pray that as we close out and we take some time to respond to you, that you would just speak to our hearts. Father, I pray that you would, you would genuinely challenge us to, to seek to be gospel-centered leaders for your sake, for your glory, so that we may honor you more. Teach us to proclaim the gospel. And Father, if there's somebody out there who, who when we presented the gospel earlier, heard it for the first time, that you would start working in their hearts. To know that, that yes, we are a, a rebellious people mired in our rebellion and our sin who need rescue, but you loved us so much that you sent the rescuer, God the Son in human flesh, to die on the cross willingly for our sake. Father, if there's someone who needs to hear that, needs to respond to that, we pray your Holy Spirit move in them mightily.